Everything that needs to be said has already been said, but since no one was listening, everything must be said again. Those are the words of French writer André Gide, and they reflect, perhaps with a bit of humor, his understanding of the need for repetition. One might wonder if God felt this way when inspiring the book of Exodus, because we're only into the seventh chapter today, and already we're encountering lots of repetition. There's hardly anything new in our text for this morning that we haven't already read in previous texts. Verse 29 of chapter 6 repeats what's said in verse 2, which consequently is reiterated in verse 6, 7, and 8. Verse 30 is a repeat of verse 12 and actually goes back to Moses' original encounter with God at Mount Horeb, chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 7, verse 1 is a reiteration of what God said in chapter 4, verse 16. Verse 3 is a repeat of chapter 4, verse 21, and it goes on and on like this. Some scholars see this repetition as a case to be made for multiple authors, that there's this converging of multiple texts, but there's likely a simpler explanation. You teachers know it. We learn through repetition. Whether it's the ongoing practice of a skill or trying to master a new concept or even the memorization of scripture, we learn by rep repetition, by doing, by hearing, by seeing things over and over and over again. So I don't believe that Moses or the Holy Spirit thinks that no one is listening here in Exodus. Everything that is here in this book is here for a reason. I think the Lord wants to make sure we get it. I think he wants to make sure that we get what he's writing. But still, this kind of style with lots of repetition doesn't make it easy for verse-by-verse verse preaching because faithful exposition of the text can lead every sermon to sound almost exactly alike. So for our study, we have already covered the name of the Lord. We have already seen the objection of Moses regarding his speech impediment. We have uh, listened to the promise of God to make Moses uh, uh, like God to Pharaoh and to give him a helper and his brother. Uh, we know that he's already said that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Here, all these things, here they are again. How are we going to handle it? What I want to do this morning is actually then hone in on just a small portion of the text. Um, what I want to do beyond pointing out all this repetition is kind of get us away from it by pointing out a small portion. Just the last part of chapter 6. It's here that we find God's command to Moses to speak his word, and it's here that we find the excuse Moses makes to try to get out of it. Father, we sit under your word with all humility. We are so grateful that you have given us your word, spoken it, written it down, and we know that you possess the words of life. And so we pray, Lord, that as we think about your word this morning, as we read it, study it, ponder it, that our hearts and minds might be infused with these words, these life-giving words of truth, of veracity, Lord, that we might sense and know what you want to say to us today through your word, and that we might receive it implanted in our hearts. For our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The part of the story that we're looking at today seems to be pretty much... Uh, a repetition of what we find in chapter 6, verse 10. Up there in verse 10 through 12, 
The Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now, following this, we learn that God commands Moses and Aaron to go and lead the Israelites out. And following that comes a genealogy. Now, you notice that I haven't read the genealogy, and we're not spending a lot of time on the genealogy, and some of you are grateful for that. But there's, there is work to be done there, and there is truth that we could mine out of that genealogy. And just for sake of brevity, I suppose, or maybe to spare you, some of that might be tedious work. Let me tell you three things that we find out about this little genealogy, and I'll leave it to you to go back and read it at some other time. The first thing that we find when we study this genealogy is that the family tree of Moses and Aaron had some interesting branches. And I, I think most of us who've studied our own family trees understand that every family tree has some interesting branches. And by interesting, you fill in what that means. I mean, there are some things happening here that aren't great. There are some odd things happening, and there are some shady characters in here. Okay? So that's interesting. The second thing that we find is that Moses and Aaron are both from the tribe of Levi. They're both Levites. Now that's significant because the Levites are the priestly tribe. And whether they know it or not or fully understand what that's all about, what God is telling us in his word, is that not by accident Moses and Aaron are called to lead the people of Israel and perform the roles of priest. They will be intercessors and they will be mediators for the people. And the last thing that we can pull out of this genealogy, and I really am consolidating this, is this truth, which I hope is encouraging to you, and I know it is encouraging to me, that if we study that and we look at all those characters and we see where Moses and Aaron came from, we understand they didn't come from a perfect family. And you don't have to be a perfect person or come from a perfect family to do great things for God. You see, God's plan and God's will moves forward through the work and lives of broken, flawed people. It always has. And it always will. And so when you look at a genealogy, honestly, I think some of us flip that page and go, oh, gracious. You know, words and names I can't pronounce. But there's actually a story there. It's worth reading. Take some time to go back through that. Now, segue into our text for this morning, 628 to 30, which again is likely a retelling, I think, of 610 through 12. And if it's not a retelling of 610 through 12, then all that means is that Moses is still harping on the same old thing. That's all that means, like he hasn't quit yet. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why should Pharaoh listen to me? How would Pharaoh listen to me? I speak with uncircumcised, faltering lips. Notice how this part of the conversation between God and Moses begins. God says, I am the Lord. Now, that is not just um, a declaration or a revelation of his name. It is a statement about his authority. The issue of authority is like the first thing that we have to settle if we're going to have a relationship with God. If we're going to have a true relationship with God, we've got to settle the idea of authority. And in fact, settling the idea of authority is good for any relationship that we are ever in. Because a lack of clarity about authority always leads to struggle. It just, it always does. 
Years ago, Liz and I had a young man in our care. Um, he was rather entitled at times, and I am not speaking of one of my children, though I could be. In one of his moments of defiance, he spouted out some words that have been um, repeated in our home several times since then, and usually with a little bit of humor. I don't recall the exact situation. I just know that this little kid spun around and looked at us and said, you're not the boss of me. Maybe you've had an experience like that with your own children or grandchildren. So now when, when either Liz or I tell each other something to do, sometimes you might just hear, you're not the boss of me. But who is the boss of me? And who is the boss of you. And I don't mean that just in theory. Like anybody can say, oh yeah, no, God's in charge. God's in. I mean in practice. I mean in reality. Who's calling the shots in your life? Jesus' disciple Thomas, you might remember him as Doubting Thomas, because he didn't believe the report of Christ being resurrected when the other disciples told him, and remember him, I'm not going to believe that unless I see this and I see that. But when he does see Jesus, when Jesus does show up, do you remember what he said? In John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas saw the resurrected Christ and he said, my Lord and my God. My Lord, kurios in the Greek, supreme authority, controller, and my God, theos, divinity, deity. When we believe in Jesus, when we receive Jesus, we, we receive him as both Savior and Lord. We know he is the one who has saved us from the wrath of God that our sins have rightly earned. And we know that he is the rightful ruler of everything in our lives from the moment of our profession of faith onward. And we joyfully place ourselves under his authority. Many balk at the idea of true authority today. Many people struggle with the idea that there is an authority to which they must submit. In 2016, Os Guinness penned an article about a troubling trend that he was observing, and he wrote this. He said, our modern world has shifted us from a stance under authority to one of preference. Or expressed more carefully, our modern world tends to undermine all forms of authority other than its own and replace them with a sense that all responses are merely a matter of preference. Feels good to you, do it. That mentality. Or, that's your truth. As if there were no absolute truth. You see, in a world like this, which is the world in which we live, Moses can lug Ten Commandments down the mountain, but they're going to be received as Ten Suggestions. Because we all reserve the right to decide whether we agree or not. But if God is Lord, and this is how he reveals himself in his word, so we don't have a lot of leeway here. He says he is the Lord, and if he is the Lord, then we who profess to believe in him live under his authority. And what that means is that, that what he says we trust and that where he sends we go and what he requires we do. 
You see, when God said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, what I told you. You notice it's not in the form of a question. In other words, God didn't say to Moses, hey, Moses, do you mind uh, doing me a favor? Could you scoot over to Pharaoh's place and deliver a little message for me today, please? Maybe. That's not, that's not what he did. One of, the, one of the principles that is very helpful in healthy relationships, especially in raising children, is you never ask a question if you intend to give a direction. Some people think it's nicer to phrase things in question form. So they phrase a command in the form of a question as if there was some wiggle room in how you want a person to respond. But that's not nicer. That is confusing. It's confusing to make somebody feel like their input is necessary or important, and then as soon as they offer it, show them that it wasn't. It's that whole thing. When I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. That's, that's not nice. That's confusing. If it's bedtime, you tell your child, go to bed, please. You don't say, oh, are you ready for bed? <laughs> kid do you know is ready for bed? I mean, I'm ready for bed right now. But a kid, I'm like, man, I'll stay up as long as I can, right? You don't say, well, don't you think it's time to go to bed? I mean, that sounds nice, but do you really want to mine the depths of that three-year-old's cranium to figure out whether he or she thinks it's okay now to go to bed? You're not interested in that. Don't you think it's time to go to bed? You don't care what he or she thinks at that moment. You want them to go to bed. So you say, turn off the TV or put away whatever, that I whatever thing you have and go brush your teeth and hop in bed and I'll be there in a minute. You can be polite. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be like a dictator, but you have to be direct. We confuse our kids when we ask questions implying that their response is needed and will influence the outcome and then proving to them that it's not. You see, as parents, we have God-given authority. We have God-given responsibility to care for our kids. And so we have the right to give a direction. As bosses, we have positional authority. It has been conferred upon us by somebody. We have that authority over our employees, and we have a right to give a direction. And God, well, he has authority over heaven and earth. So he has every right to give any direction he ever wants. That's what he's doing here with Moses. Something I always used to hate to hear, and I bet some of you did too, was in response to a direction that we didn't like as kids, we would say, why? Like two syllables, why? And then, invariably, this is what you hear. Because I said so. He had a whole <laughs> nodding mama head out there right now. He's got it all going on because I said so. I hated that. I want more. I want an explanation. I want to get you in an argument. I might be able to win. But, you know, as much as that's hard to hear sometimes, and we don't want to hear it, 
Nothing wrong with it. And when it comes to God, if anybody has a right to say, because I said so, he would be the one, wouldn't he? Because he's the Lord. And so he comes to Moses and he says, I'm the Lord. In other words, I have authority. I have the authority you're worried about. It's not just a declaration of authority. It's also an affirmation of his power. In a little while, Moses is going to speak some words of comfort to his fearful, frenzied flock as the breath of the Egyptian army is beating down on their necks and a seemingly insurpassable sea in front of them. And he says to them, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now here he is in our text, a little less full of faith than he will be, caught in his own predicament between the angry Hebrews whose lives he's actually made worse by his meddling and a despotic Pharaoh who has no, no regard whatsoever for human life. And here is Moses. He is in that proverbial place we know to be between a rock and a hard place. He's in a difficult situation, and what does God say to him? I am Lord. You might be in a pinch today. You might be in a place like those Israelites. You might be in a place like Moses, where when you look behind you and you see what's gaining on you, that's, that's scary. And the past is no place to go. And you may be looking ahead and you see things that you don't know how you're going to navigate that. You don't know how you're going to manage that. You might be tearing your head up, hair out thinking, how am I going to do all of this? Or how's this going to get done? Or you, maybe you've actually got to a point now where things look so hopeless, you just kind of resign yourself to an outcome that as far as you're concerned, whether you go back or forward, it isn't going to be good, so it really doesn't matter. Into that situation, God says, I am don't take your eyes off that. Don't forget that. See, God is the one who makes a way, right? That chorus we sing, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. In fact, that is what he has already done. He has done that in Jesus. That's what Jesus is, right? Jesus is the way. The way, the truth, and the life. Sent into this world, lost in sin, each of us, hemmed in by the brokenness of the present age, each of us knowing full well that death and judgment is imminent and looming, certain and coming faster all the time, slaves to sin, no way to escape, but God sends his son Jesus, who comes and lives a perfect life and takes our sin upon himself. Who, who attributes to us his righteousness so that we can be reconciled to God, who was buried three days later, rose again, who broke the grip of sin, who defeated the power of death, who gives the gift of eternal life to all who will believe in him. God has made a way. The Lord makes a way. And we do well to remember the power of our God. I know that life and circumstances seem very powerful, very intimidating, very foreboding. They are not as powerful as God. In devotional reading this week, I was in, I'm in Psalms, 
I came across these verses, Psalm 94, verse 18 to 19. The psalmist says, when I said my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. And when anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. It's just that God can get rid of the anxiety. He can replace it with joy when we turn to him. Do well to remember the power of God. Paul wanted the Ephesians to remember the power of God. He prayed that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and all knowledge of him. He prayed that, that the Ephesians would have the eyes of their hearts opened or enlightened, that they might know the hope that, that they were called to in Christ, that they might know the glorious riches of his inheritance, he said, in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Power of God directed to us who believe. The power of God to act on our behalf. It is with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm that God is preparing to deliver the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt. Tim Chester, author and pastor, puts it this way. He says, in the same way and with the same ease that you or I would reach across the dinner table to grab a shaker of salt... God is about to stretch out his arm over Egypt, and with great acts of judgment, he will lead his people out of their slavery. That power and that might should factor into Moses' thinking, don't you think? But it doesn't, and it should factor into ours, does it? Scripture teach that the kingdom work comes not by our might, not by our but by his spirit, a kingdom work gets done. But God has authority and God has power because he is the Lord. He tells Moses what to do and what is Moses' response? Behold, I am of, of uncircumcised, the enemy says, faltering lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So basically, Moses responds with an excuse. In his heart, he's still convinced that God has the wrong guy. You might be wrestling with something that God has put on your heart, and you might think, be thinking the same thing. I'm not the right person. Be careful. Be careful. Because you, you very well may be. Moses wrestled with this. By the way, he's going to get better. And I want to spoil the whole story, because we are going to make our way through it. But this does change, Okay. But right now, in this story, he's still fixed, fixated on himself. He's still fixated on his disability, which he perceives as inability. That would be his speech impediment. That, that's his excuse. And we could be critical of him here, especially since we've read the whole book. But if we were honest, and I, I think we ought to be, we might see a little bit of ourselves in Moses. And in fact, I think as we make our way through Exodus, we're going to become much more sympathetic with the Israelites. I don't know if you've had this experience. I have. Reading the book of Exodus, and look at those stupid, stupid Israelites. But the more you dig into that, the more you understand those human, human Israelites. We're not much different from them because we're so very human, so very prone to fail and fall and struggle and doubt. Right? That's who we are. We're really not much different from them. We're not much different from Moses and all his excuse making. 
Excuses for not doing what we're told or not doing the right thing, they're common. Christians aren't immune from that. We, we make excuses too. I'm not complaining, but I feel that over time in my life as, as a pastor and in years of counseling ministry, I have listened to a lot of excuses. I have listened to the reasons and the rationales why a person can't give as the scriptures teach, why a person can't go as the Bible commands, why a person can't serve as Jesus says to, why a person can't worship the way the word instructs us to, or witness the way each one of us is called to. I have heard those excuses, and you know what? Over the years, I have made excuses for myself as well. We're no stranger to excuses. Jesus dealt with excuses. Jesus dealt with excuses. A couple of times in the New Testament, people came to him and said, hey, Lord, I want to follow you, but first... I have some business I want to attend to. I do want to be your disciple, but i got to get some things straightened away. I'll follow you, but first, it doesn't work that way. The expectation of Scripture is that if you're going to have a relationship with God, it's got to be God first. It's God first, not but first. The Ten Commandments begin by saying we are to have no other God before the Lord Jesus. When Christ summarized those commandments, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. In his Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is addressing the understandable and normal concerns of his listeners, where am I going to eat? Where am I going to wear? Where am I going to live? What does he say to them? He says, seek first his kingdom. And all these things that you're concerned about are going to be added to you. Make him first in your life. Make him priority. God has to be first. Imagine what this would look like if, if any country or city or town or church or family, imagine what that would look like if everyone in it followed the principle of God first, not but first. And but first, we know, when we start with but first, what we're really saying is me first. Yes, I'll do what you want, Lord, but I have some things tend to. Well, Moses has already revealed to us his true motivation when he asked God to please send somebody else. He just doesn't want to do what God's calling him to do. He hesitates to obey, at least partly because he's making two very easy-to-make mistakes. First is he's thinking about what he can and cannot do according to his natural abilities. And we tend to do that, don't we? When we feel a call of God on us, the first thing we do is evaluate, take an assessment, take an inventory. Do I have what it takes? Can I make this happen? Or has God lost his mind? So Moses is thinking first what he can and cannot do according to his natural abilities. And second, he has a wrong idea of what success will look like. He first raises that issue that he seems most sensitive about, this concern he always has, that people won't be listening to him. And God has already dealt with this. God has told him, listen, I made your mouth. I know what it does. I understand it. I'm calling you anyway. Listen, I'll teach you what to say, and I'll tell you how to say it even. He's already told him that. Okay, I understand you have a real problem. I'll send you your brother, and he can help you with this. So let's get on with it. God has already addressed all of these objections. But Moses still is thinking of himself, what he can do, what he can't do. 
He questions his skills. He questions his qualifications. And this is where Kevin DeYoung offers an apt word for all of us. He says, it's okay to doubt what you can do, but do not doubt what God can do with you. It's okay to doubt what you can do, but do not doubt what God can do with you. Moses' second problem is what I would call a sin of assumption, and that is he's assuming he knows what God's plan is. Have you ever been guilty of that one? I sure have. You think it's going to go a certain way, and you have your heart set on it, and you have your eyes set on it, and this is what success looks like, and this is where God's leading me, and you do everything that you think is right to be faithful and obedient, and it doesn't work out the way that you thought it should or it would. We have a wrong idea of what success looks like. Moses here is assuming that success is going to look like Pharaoh listening to him, maybe even Pharaoh turning around and obeying him. Right? Moses thinks that Pharaoh is going to listen to him. And most of us sitting here by now have learned, right, that you can't make anyone listen to you. You can't. I mean, you can, you can make it more worthwhile than not for them to listen to you, but you can't make them really listen to you, especially when it comes to spiritual things. No preacher, no teacher, no matter how eloquent, no matter how persuasive or convincing, can make a person believe God's word. And that's what Moses is bringing to Pharaoh, God's word. Faith is required for someone to believe. Faith is a gift of God. It's a gift of God's grace. So Moses is worried that Pharaoh's not going to listen to him. But you know what? He doesn't have to worry about that. Why do we know that? Because God doesn't intend for Pharaoh to listen to him. We already have this in the story. He's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh's going to harden his own heart. So God's intention isn't that Pharaoh turns around and has a come-to-Jesus moment. That is not what he is expecting. Now, that's difficult to grasp. That is difficult to grasp. God doesn't intend for Pharaoh to come to faith. He intends for him to hear the word. He intends for Moses to be the one to speak the word, but he doesn't expect Pharaoh to receive it. And that's one of those mysteries in Scripture that us pragmatists shake our head at. Like, if it isn't going to work, why do we bother to do it? Right? And the answer is that it is going to work. It's just not going to work the way you think it's going to work. It's going to work the way he has planned it to work, according to his will and not ours. Later in the book of Exodus, God's going to give us a little bit of insight into this very hard-to-comprehend exercise of his sovereign will, hardening hearts. It's repeated by the Apostle Paul, Romans 9, 15 to 18, where he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It is God's perspective and God's prerogative. So mercy on whom he wills, and to harden whom he wills. Moses thought he was only going to be successful if he could change Pharaoh's mind. But success would not involve changing Pharaoh's mind. Success was Moses' obedience. God was not holding him responsible for an outcome. So, you can wrap it up this way. What does any of this have to do with us? 
a lovely story set way long ago. What does it have anything to do with us? I mean, is this just a story from there and then that has no implications from here and now? After all, none of us are, right? None of us are Moses. We're not even like him. Wait a minute. Yes, we are. As Christians, we are like him in many ways. And I just want to go over a few here briefly. The first is this. Just like Moses, we Christians are called. We are called. Every one of us here is called. Everyone who professes Jesus has been called by Jesus. The Apostle Paul starts his first letter to the Corinthians this way. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. The Apostle Peter in his first epistle, second chapter, ninth verse, but you, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every Christian is called. And beyond that, every Christian is called to speak. I hope I'm meddling here and maybe even causing a little bit of anxiety amongst you at this point. You're called to speak. You're not just called into the kingdom. You're called for a purpose, right? The whole thing of Exodus is what? Save to serve. And God has saved you to serve him. And part of that service is speaking. It's telling the truth about God. Now, there's a phrase many of you probably heard. It's, pretty, it's, it's circulated quite a bit since the 1990s, which is probably where, when it originated, even though it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It's a good bet that he didn't say it, there's no proof that he ever did, but here it is. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. I mean, that belongs on a card, or a calendar, or a meme. It's profound. It sounds so good. It keeps us from being preachy. It gives us a sense that we can, we can preach the gospel just by the way that we live our lives. We don't really have to say anything. And it's not completely without merit either. The Bible tells us to lead holy lives that will cause people to be inquisitive about why. There's no question about that. But I'm going to ask you in all honesty, if you were to buy into a philosophy like this, do you really think in a post-modern, post-Christian world that you waving at your neighbor when you go by or lending him your lawnmower is going to cause him to say, oh, he must be a Christian. He must know Jesus. He's such a gospel-minded person because I can cut my grass with his mower. No. It doesn't. See, we live in a world of a bunch of Pharaohs, and I don't mean that as harsh as it might sound. Pharaoh, remember when Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, listen, God has said, remember what Pharaoh said? Who's God? Who are you talking about? So when you live in a postmodern, post-Christian world, and you think by your life you're going you're gonna to show everybody that God has said, listen, even if you use the words, people are going to ask you who is God. You go ahead and ask people who they think Jesus is. See what you come up with. So we do have to live holy lives, but we also have to speak. 
God is calling us all to speak and share the gospel. That's what Peter is saying, right? That, that we are bought by God, we are his possession to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that word that we translate proclaim, it means to show forth. And so we do show forth with our lives, but we also show forth with our lips. Every Christian is called to speak. And you know, that makes people nervous. But listen, you don't have to come up with a bunch of words. You don't even have to come up with a story. You already have the story. It's a story of salvation. It's a story of Jesus. In fact, I encourage you not to add a whole lot to it or take a whole lot from it, but to share Scripture. Why? Because Scripture is where the power is. Because that's the Word of God. That's the Word that God says when it is sown, that seed when it is sown, it will not return void. So you already have the story. The question is, will you share the story? And Jesus has already said of every one of us, not just that we're out to be making disciples, but you are to be my witnesses. Our job, that's what he's told us to do. And this is where we can get to be a little bit like Moses when it comes to this specific call on our lives. Because we might struggle with the gumption to get up the words to, uh, to share that gospel or the courage. We might fret over our presentation. We might lose sleep over the idea that maybe we're going to be rejected if we tell somebody about Jesus and they don't receive it. Maybe we even tried this once or twice and we stumbled and bumbled and fell flat on our face. and We did such a horrible job and nothing ever happened. And we said, well, that just isn't my gift. But evangelism isn't a gift. Evangelism is a basic expectation. It's not even a high expectation. It's a basic expectation of every Christian to be salt and light, to make disciples, to be ready to give a reason for the hope that resides within you. We have to be willing and able to speak the gospel and the truth about God to people. And we don't do that sometimes, and we know that we should, because we're worried. We're worried that we won't be listened to. And, and we, we don't think we have the requisite skills, or we don't think that we have the biblical knowledge. And our sense of what success looks like is, is a little skewed, like Moses was. We think that if we share Jesus, if we share the gospel, then somebody's going to come to the Lord. And if they don't, then we failed. But you know what? I mean, most of the time that you share the gospel, people aren't going to just come to the Lord. It's reported that... that the average non-believing adult hears the gospel, that God loves them, right? That Christ died for them, that eternal life can be theirs, that gift, an average of seven times before receiving Christ. So the average non-believing adult hears the gospel an average of seven times before receiving Christ. And I'm not quoting this to say that there's any kind of formula out there. I'm not pulling the Holy Spirit away from this equation. He saves who he wants, when he wants, where and how he wants. I'm just saying that this is an experience that many have had who came to Jesus. And when they were asked, how many times did you hear this? They, they came up with an, a number, about seven. Okay. People have to hear the gospel again and again, oftentimes before it clicks. What if you're the first one to share the gospel? What if you're the fourth one? What if you're fifth? You would come away from those conversations thinking that you hadn't done anything, that no change had taken place, that that was a waste of your time. 
that's not how it was. That's not how it is. You are doing something. You see, like Moses, we tend to evaluate ourselves based on the outcome. But we have to remember that God doesn't. It was Mother Teresa who gets credited with this, that, that God didn't call me to be successful, but to be faithful. So forget your worldly standard of success and be faithful to what God calls you to be. And that's, that's all he wants out of you. He'll take care of everything else. And you can do this. You can do this. You can speak the word of God. God will help you to be faithful. God loves to answer those prayers, you know, all the time. When we pray to him, Lord, I want to be faithful to what you want. I want to do your will. I want to honor you with my life. I want to give you glory. He answers those prayers. loves those prayers. If you pray for God to open a door like that, he's going to open it. Absolutely, he's going to open it. And then the thing is, will you walk through it? And if you walk through it, what would you remember as you're walking through it? I suggest you remember this. I am Lord. That you're walking through an open door as a representative of God to speak the word of God. It's not about you. He will do what he wants to do through you. I like the encouragement Phil Riken gives us in this area in his commentary on Exodus. He assures us that God's call is always accompanied by God's gift. So if you're worried whether or not you can do it, whether or not you're able, whether or not you have the resources, God's call is always accompanied by God's gift. That if God calls you to it, God will see to it that you have all that you need to do his will. Right? And it's never too, too early to start or too late to begin speaking the word of God. You've been sitting here now thinking, I've been a Christian for a long time. I haven't shared the gospel with anybody. And you don't want to leave hanging your head and feeling all guilty. And that is not what I'm talking about. It is never too early to start. It is never too late to begin. You don't cry over that spilled milk. You just take the word and you say, I want to be faithful from here on out. How do we know that you can start at any time? Well, Exodus 7, 7 tells us this. It's in here for a reason now. Moses and Aaron when they were called to this point of ministry in their life, were 80 and 83 years old. Right? Doesn't that jump out to anybody else but me? 80? 83? That's retirement age. You're supposed to be spending all your money so your kids can't get it. You're supposed to be sitting in a hot climate Enjoying the beach and no mosquitoes. 83. You hope to be able to tie your shoes when you're 83. You tell me I'm going to be out speaking the word of God. That's when Moses and Aaron began. But here's the thing. As long as you are alive, as long as you are able, if you are a believer, God calls you to speak his word. So you're never disqualified. You're not aging out. You don't retire. You can start at a young age, a real young age. In fact, haven't most of us been ministered to by the wisdom that comes from the mouths of babes? Because God can speak through anybody who's a willing vessel. 
And I pray that you will be that willing vessel. Because that's how the kingdom moves forward. That's how the good news is shared. That's how people get saved. And that's how people avoid hell. By hearing the gospel. And having a chance to respond to the truth of God. You, believer, are called to speak the word of God. You can do it. You can do it. Let's stand and sing in conclusion our final hymn. It's number